All right, our text this morning is Psalm 82. If you'd like to uh, open your Bible to Psalm 82 or navigate on your electronic device. Psalm 82. We are studying Psalms, uh, through the Psalms, Psalms that Jesus either quoted from or our messianic psalms. And this is a psalm you will recognize Jesus quoting from in the New Testament book of John. The topic here, we are introduced to supernatural beings called gods who oppose God by exercising an evil influence upon human beings and our societies. The title of our message, My God's Better Than Your God. My God's Better Than Yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us uh, through worship, Lord. Sometimes it just feels like we ought to just continue singing forever and ever. And I guess, uh, Lord, one of these days we're going to join with the chorus of angels and all the saints of all the ages and sing hallelujah before your throne. A little foretaste that we get each week as we gather on Sundays is really a beautiful thing. We admit that we can't understand or appreciate your word without the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Uh, We know that he's here because he indwells Christians and he indwells Christians who have gathered together. And so we pray for his illumination and inspiration on this very important word. Bless us, Lord, for having been here in the fellowship of the saints. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. The Walking Dead, not about zombies. On the surface, the hit AMC television series tells how people stay alive after the zombie apocalypse. And yes, there are lots and lots of slow walking zombies in various states of decay. It's amazing really how many ways you can kill a zombie considering it must always involve beheading or a wound through the skull into the brain. Kudos for their creativity. Killing zombies, however, is merely a backdrop for the real story. After the collapse of human society, groups form And the show explores how they struggle with establishing a new normal in their post-apocalyptic world. The way societies regroup after what is commonly but mistakenly called the apocalypse, that's a time-tested sci-fi plot point. They usually regroup badly. A recent film example would be Snowpiercer. Let me read the synopsis of the plot. After an attempt to stop global warming via climate engineering catastrophically backfires, Creating a new ice age in 2014, the remnants of humanity have taken to a circumnavigational train called the Snowpiercer. It's run by reclusive transportation magnet Wilford. By 2031, the passengers on that train have become segregated, the elite in the extravagant front cars and the poor in squalid tail compartments controlled by armed guards. Today, we are talking incessantly about the new normal, Folks seem to want to have a redo in society. In the secular and in the spiritual, wholesale changes are being suggested or made. Maybe we should take a deep breath, look to the one who established human society on certain bedrock foundations. Psalm 82 is actually important in that regard. It can be looked at from that angle. First of all, we will see a direct statement about how human society is to behave. In the middle of the psalm, it says... Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. Second of all, we're going to meet supernatural beings who oppose God by influencing humans to ruin the foundations of society. 
This supernatural interference is almost never factored in to these discussions about the new normal. Now, we must be careful not to read anything into this psalm. It wasn't written for 21st century America. You have to be careful that what you're thinking about doesn't influence the interpretation of what you're reading. And that happens all the time. Uh, You don't understand it. You don't think about it. It happens to me. It happens to everybody. What you've been reading and thinking about influences what you see in the Bible. And so we need to, as much as possible, draw back from that and just say, hey, what is the text really saying? And we'll see this morning that it really is saying some things that are applicable to our situation in the world today, as long as we don't take it too far. And one reason it's applicable, of course, is because God never changes. What he says about human society here hasn't changed, and what he says about the supernatural hasn't changed. So I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, there are gods who encourage society's ruin. And number two, there is God who establishes society's righteousness. Gods, where did I come up with that? Well, bear with me. This psalm needs a little longer introduction than most. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, then verses 5 through 8 with a little bit of commentary in the English Standard Version, the ESV. And so verse 1 in the ESV, a psalm of Asaph, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So the first thing that is clear to anyone, there is a divine council of beings called gods, little g. They have some oversight or at least some involvement with mankind because they judge. In their judging, they prefer the wicked. Verse five, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Second thing to note that is clear to anyone, whoever these gods are, their wisdom is limited and their walking in darkness affects the social foundations of the earth negatively. Verse six, I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and like uh, and fall rather like any prince. Third thing to know, which is clear to anyone, whoever they are, they are not human beings. The divine punishment that they will die like men can only mean they are not men. And so he's saying, you're not men, but you're going to die like men. Now, I don't normally have you turn away from our passage, but today it's important. I'd like you to turn to chapter 10 in the Gospel of John. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ quotes Psalm 82. While you're turning there, I'll let you know that in verse 24, the Jews asked Jesus if he is their Messiah. Answering them in verse 30, he says, I and my father are one. And then we pick up the story in verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. By the way, if anybody ever tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, uh, the Jews understood him all the time to be claiming to be God. They were going to kill him for what they considered blasphemy. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? 
Now, the Jews wanted to stone Jesus for claiming to be God. In his defense, he quoted Psalm 82. We're not going to get into all the nuances of it, but just with that in mind, think about it this way. Jesus' quotation of Psalm 82 is not an argument for his deity if he and the Jews thought that the gods in Psalm 82 were mere human judges. Remember, this is in the context of, are you God or not? And if you say you are, we're going to stone you. And then Jesus says, well, here's my example from scripture. And he's certainly not going to say, these guys were men and I'm a man. That would be uh, backpedaling. And, And so how could Jesus claim to be God by comparing himself to other human beings? And so it's clear that the gods in this psalm are supernatural. Now, we've talked about the Hebrew word Elohim. Turns out it is not a name for Almighty God. Other beings are called Elohim in the Bible. It describes any being who is what we call supernatural. Archangels, cherubim, seraphim, the good angels are all Elohim. Satan, the fallen angels, demons, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, they are Elohim. Because Almighty God is supernatural, because he dwells in that normally unseen realm, he too is Elohim. But note, while the Almighty God is an Elohim, no Elohim is the Almighty God. They are part of his creation. So they share the designation of beings being in a supernatural realm, but it takes nothing away from God, the creator of heaven and earth, the triune God whom we worship. One very important point that people are failing to take into account in today's turmoil is that there are supernatural beings involved in human affairs. Many of them are wicked influencers. Any discussion that does not recognize the supernatural is senseless. One pastor compared it to rearranging the furniture in a burning house. And I think you would agree that that's pretty ridiculous. And so I know it it sounds... We need to get over thinking that there, and even Christians do this, we think that there's a secular realm and a spiritual realm, and that we can't really talk in the secular realm about uh, the fact that there are supernatural beings that have an influence on human society. We need to leave that at the door and just talk about uh, how we can solve the problems of society. Regardless, people might think you're crazy. Obviously, if there are supernatural forces at work, Whatever we do on a natural basis is bound to fail because they are stronger and more intelligent than us. We have to recognize that that this is happening. And if people don't want to recognize it, it's still happening. It's still true. And so let's take a look at the psalm verse by verse. Psalm 82 verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Asaph's a great guy, had a long run as one of the head worship leaders. He worshiped in the tabernacle and he worshiped in the temple of Solomon. It reminds us, uh, it reminds me of us. We worshiped at the Y, now we worship here. God bless you if you ever attended the YMCA. And if you attended for a long time, your place in heaven is secure. This divine counsel is directly mentioned or is alluded to in other passages. This isn't only the only place where you read about it. For example, Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7, and Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. 
I'm not sure if it was a divine council meeting, but you get a hint at what our almighty God's place is among these Elohim when you read the first two chapters of the book of Job. You remember there that there was a day when the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came and presented himself before the Lord, and they got into a conversation about uh, Job and what should be happening to him on the earth. And in that uh, book of Job, Satan was identified as one of the sons of God in that God created him. Sons of God is a common designation for angels. God, the almighty God, God in three persons is sovereign, creator, and infinitely superior to any other created being. Psalm 82, as in Job, God sits in judgment over the Elohim. What uh, one thing he judges them for are their dealings with human beings. Verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, I should tell you that the mainstream evangelical interpretation of this psalm is that the gods are really just human judges or government officials who God has given authority to and who he holds accountable. Jesus let us know by his use of the scriptures that they were, in fact, supernatural. And even in the psalm itself, as I read before, it says, you are this, but you are going to die like men. You would never say to somebody, you're a man and you're gonna die like a man. That doesn't make any sense in the context. So they are not human judges. Uh, why do people think they're human judges? Because they don't wanna talk about these supernatural things because you know how, why? You sound crazy. When you start talking about spirits and powers behind the government and stuff, everybody thinks you're in a, in a cult and all you're doing is reading the Bible. And so they tone it down they're trying to look for a not, you have to understand a lot of Bible commentators are not supernaturally inclined. They're always looking for a more natural explanation of uh, what happened in the Bible that was clearly supernatural. Not talking about non-believers or scientists or atheists. I'm talking sadly about a lot of Christians and uh, they try and justify these things and it's clearly not true. So in what sense do these wicked Elohim judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Well, I would look at the book of Daniel and I would go to chapter 10. Daniel had been praying and he had received a massive heavenly vision he did not understand. And that was big for Daniel because he was an interpreter of dreams and visions. God dispatched his angel, probably Gabriel, to speak with Daniel. But we read that he was delayed. In Daniel 10, it says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Gabriel, then the mighty archangel Michael, were withstood by what could only be another Elohim, here called the prince of Persia. So Gabriel's on his way to see Daniel with this tremendous interpretation of the end times. And the prince of Persia withstood him. That's clearly not a man. Uh, men can't stand in the presence of angels it's clearly a supernatural being. And for 21 days, they had some kind of angel warfare. I don't know if it was a shouting match, an insult match, or, you know, I don't know how angels fight, really. But after 21 days, finally, Michael came and he tapped out uh, Gabriel so Gabriel could go and talk to Daniel. And Michael started fighting with this being. And so from this, we learned that there are wicked Elohim that have some limited rulership or involvement with human governments, or at least they interfere with human beings. So ancient Persia had a wicked Elohim prince. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read that Satan once had a throne in the city of Pergamum. 
Now, again, a lot of people want to say that's symbolic. It means that they were given over to satanic worship or things like that. But why can't it be literal? We know Satan is a real being. Uh, we know that he's the ruler of this earth, it says in the Bible, the God of this world. We see in Job that he roams around the earth and then comes to heaven when he's called. And uh, for a time, apparently, he had an actual throne at the city of Pergamum. And it, it shouldn't surprise us that the devil wants a throne because he's wanted worship all along. And so there is obvious involvement with the nations and cities of the world. The Almighty God grants these beings free will but oversees them and moves his plan forward through history by his providence. I jump down to verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. These wicked Elohim haven't the purity or the power of God. Their knowledge and their understanding is not only insufficient, it comes from a place of moral darkness. The result, the very foundations of the earth are shaken. Want an example of what that means? Early on in Genesis, God established the absolute bedrock foundation for all of human society. It was marriage God's way. Monogamous, heterosexual, binding for life. I would say those foundations are certainly being shaken today, wouldn't you? We have essentially, by we I mean our society, has essentially given up and surrendered uh, biblical marriage. There, biblical marriage, you want to get married in a biblical sense, that's fine, but you can get married in any other way that you want to as well. And so that foundation has been blown to smithereens, as we say. Came across an article in the Washington Times where the writer said this, if I wanted to destroy a society, I would destroy the family, the fabric of society. I would tear apart the nuclear family that produced stable children. Want to know why people aren't stable anymore? They're not coming from uh, solid nuclear families, and uh, it's causing all kinds of problems. But again, you're not really able to talk about that, are you, in the public discussion of things? You, you have to start where these people want you to start, not by going back. Everybody feels like going back to the Bible would be uh, the wrong thing to do when, in fact, it's the only thing to do. Human society is going to continue to be influenced by wickedness. Satan is, after all, called the God of this world. This world was described by the Apostle John as being in darkness until the light came and the light was Jesus Christ. We're not saying judges and government officials are possessed. But those who do not know Jesus are prone to wickedness by nature. Add to that the influence of Elohim, and you can understand why unrighteousness is rampant on the earth. Do you ever wonder why when you're talking to people who are especially not Christians uh, about social issues or things that are happening today, they have all these irrational points of view? Here's a mistake. It's not really a mistake, but here's what we like to do in, you know, when you get involved in maybe a political discussion with people or a social discussion, you like to bring the facts. You bring the stats out. You, you marshal the statistics and, and you say, 100% of the time this fails. And so you, you have to believe me. And they say, yeah, no, we forget it. Well, that's irrational. Okay. And so you, you quickly realize you can't change people's hearts statistically. They don't want to know what works and doesn't work. They're just... And you think, why is a person so irrational? And you remember, oh, yeah, I know. They're a sinner by nature, and they're blinded by the devil. And what they really need is not my statistics. They need Jesus Christ. So maybe I should concentrate more on that. Not totally, 
But more on that, maybe that's the foundation for everything I want to talk about. Verse six, I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. The Elohim held a majestic place in God's creation. We read, for example, of Satan, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Some exercise their free will to disobey God. They therefore will be judged alongside human beings. They too will be thrown alive to spend eternity in the conscious torment of the lake of fire. And as many of you know, uh, the scripture tells us that the lake of fire, what we call hell, was created for the devil and his angels uh, for their place of punishment. And so it, it will become a reality. This is not an allegory. Uh, it will become a reality that they, though they were uh, majestic angelic beings, are going to die eternally like men. Verse eight, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Reading the revelation of Jesus Christ, you understand that in the great tribulation, God is judging the nations. Next, in the millennial kingdom, God is judging the nations. Next, at the great white throne, God judges all the nations and individuals of the earth. You also read in Revelation, then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's where we're headed. That's, that's where all of this is leading. From the time of Genesis until now and into the future, we're coming to the place where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Jesus Christ. He's already won them. They belong to him. He's just waiting to implement them for more people to get saved. And so I say at this point, we win. And that is huge. We win without giving special attention to the wicked angels or Elohim, by the way. We don't need to get into demonology and Satanology. We don't need to identify territorial spirits. That was big a few years ago. If we wanted to have victory, you had to find out what territorial spirit used to live here in our building, find out its name and exorcise it. We were getting calls all the time from people who wanted us to come and exorcise their, their house and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, nobody in the scripture who encountered these beings acted like that. Daniel, Gabriel told him what was going on and Daniel just went on being a, an obedient Jew. He didn't form Daniel's supernatural demon hunting party or anything like that, right? Uh, you just don't see any of that. And so just, it, I guess it's really hard to just be a simple Christian. You want to have some cause, you know, you want to be a demon hunter or something like that, but it, it's not going to be that way. Live out a simple, normal Christian life, a Daniel-like life of obedience followed by living sacrifice. Now, number two, there is a God who establishes a society's righteousness. What happens when we leave God out of our redo of society? In the book of Romans, we read, and I'll quote, this is just part of the terror of it. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, evil mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. J. 
chip away at the biblical foundations of human society and you end up in this Romans 1 death spiral where things are getting worse and worse and worse and accelerating on a rapid basis. I think there's abundant evidence to support that our great nation has been in this downward spiral for quite some time. It's not a matter anymore of when, it's a matter of when we're going to hit bottom. And, uh, it, you know, but for the church of Jesus Christ, which everybody thinks is weak and powerless, if we weren't on the earth, oh man, there'd be no hope for the United States. And so, but even with us, uh, most of our leaders have given up on God and his principles and we're really just being sucked into this immoral mire. As believers, we're empowered by Jesus to address social crises two ways, at least. Now, there are many other ways. There are political ways. There are things that you guys want to get involved with. That's fine. But spiritually, there are two things that we address. One is worldview and the other is mission. Our worldview, I would say, is John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Our mission is to take that message to the world of lost men and women. I would refer you to Jesus's great commission where he says to go through the world uh, making disciples and uh, you know, raising them up in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure who first said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Billy Graham said it a lot, but I'm not sure if it originates with him, but it is profoundly true. Hearts must change. If you want real change, hearts must change. Only God has the power to change them. And that power we are promised is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Whether it's a marriage or a monarchy, a relationship with the living God is the answer. So many of us, many of you, uh, got saved later in life, and maybe God saved your marriage. Your marriage was a train wreck. It was headed into the pits. You were getting a divorce or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you come to Jesus Christ. You repent of your sins and receive his forgiveness. And what was impossible a few seconds earlier is completely understandable because you have the power of God and you want to be obedient to God. You want to walk with God and all of that. Same thing can happen in, in terms of any situation. The problem is we've been trained over the years, and I, I, it's me too, it's all of us. We, even though we're, we're solid evangelical Christians, we, we keep the secular and the spiritual separated. I, I wouldn't say because we are ashamed of the gospel, but because we think it, it doesn't matter to people. And so we would go into these discussions and say, well, here's what's going on. The world is condemned, but it, I got great news for you. It's been saved by Jesus Christ. You need to be born again, forgiven your sins and all. And people would say, okay, well, that's really great, but what are we going to do? How are we going to solve this problem? Uh, well, let me add to that. Maybe we should go back to a biblical a marriage with nuclear families. Uh, yeah, do you want to go get a Coke or something while we discuss the real issues here? You know, we're not going to go backwards into some ancient history. We're a modern society. Yeah, we have modern problems, too, that are all the result of, of keeping God out of our knowledge. And so it's up to us 
Whatever else we do, I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not saying you can't be involved in certain things, but whatever else we do, we need to be the voice of the gospel because ultimately the gospel is the power of God to salvation and to changing lives and changing lives is the answer and is the issue. And so that's what we're all about. I, very, I don't think I've ever been political from the pulpit in terms of telling you how to vote or who to vote for or anything like that. A lot of people want uh, that to be happening today in churches. They bring up crazy history from the past of pastors who used to, you know, call on people and rally them politically. I think you're a lot smarter than that. I, I shouldn't have to tell you who to vote for or what you believe. Uh, are you that stupid? No, you're smart. You, you should be, what you need is the word of God. And then you process the word of God in your own reality, in your own situation, in your own circumstances. And God uses that to guide you in a direction that will mostly be the same for all Christians, but not completely. For example, I'd probably get in trouble saying this, but because uh, I haven't thought it through. But when does that ever stop me? Uh, we have to all agree that abortion is murder. If you've had an abortion, we love you and you know the Lord loves you and there's no unforgivable sin. I always like to preface it. We're not picking on anybody. But abortion is murder. And so if I, I can tell you that we can you can always vote pro-life because that it's biblical. But then there are a bunch of issues that Christians can actually disagree on. I don't know how to solve the problem of blank, whatever it might be. And we can have honest discussion about that. I realized, I'll tell you a secret. There are some Christians in the world who are Democrats. <laughs> You're not laughing, so that's you've been busted, you know. But anyway, that's an exaggeration, maybe. But, um, you know, so I shouldn't have to tell you, I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life, and you don't want me to be. Uh, and so now if you want to ask me who are you voting for and why that's that's fine, but it's not going to come officially. So get as involved as you want. But in fact, Christians need to be involved in politics, but they need to be involved in politics with this worldview and mission in mind. And people need to know that every time you want to talk about something, I'm going to talk about how you need Jesus Christ and how we need Jesus Christ and how he saved my life and put my marriage together and can work to do the same for you and in this country. And, and so that's, that's what I'm getting at. Early Christian rocker Larry Norman had a song, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus, He's Got the Answer. Stan Lee would say, enough said. Psalm 82 expresses one of God's foundational principles for human society, compassion. Verses three and four, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In the context of this psalm, these are the areas in which these wicked Elohim, guys like the Prince of Persia, were influencing mankind. Their influence was to withhold justice from the weak and the fatherless, to eliminate the right of the afflicted and destitute, to abandon the weak and the needy, and to deliver them to the hand of the wicked. We are to have compassion upon all, and especially the weakest, most destitute, most needy. Too simplistic, you say, for the complex problems of modern society? The Jews had a tremendously complex law system, the Mosaic Law. People still talk about it today in terms of how it might have been implemented. 
but as complex as it was, Jesus thought it was pretty simple. Once he was asked if he could summarize the law into one single statement, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, that's all that God has to say. Love him, love others. Again, we need to bring this into these discussions. This is bottom line. You know, and, and, and so if people don't want to do that, then we need to realize we're settling for something less. We need to at least have Christian principles then, right? Not every Christian, you don't have to have Christians to have Christian principles and Christian morals, but that works and what we're doing today doesn't. That statement of Jesus, it sounds so profound and powerful in church, but out in the world, it's dismissed as overly simplistic, wishful thinking. People say, well, we don't want to, we're having a political discussion, but there's things that people don't talk about, and that's religion and politics. Well, I thought we were talking politics. Yeah, but we're not talking religion. Okay. I'm not talking religion either. It's the old relationship situation. But anyway, do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus Christ changes hearts, changed hearts, changed the nation. The more Christians you have, theoretically at least, the more godly your society is going to be. So remember your worldview, commit to your mission, and do it all with compassion.